The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Welcome back to a lot of you. Welcome to those of you who are with us online still. We are grateful to be here as we continue our series, Broken Body. I got so into the series, I broke my body. Uh, really was so encouraged by Brandon's words about our dear friend, Ashley Boutte. We have loved seeing Ashley be part of our church and in our home and part of our family. The Bowers boys will cry lots of tears when Miss Ashley goes to Japan. Her mom and dad might as well. Um, but we're grateful. So go to the hub on our website, scroll down and see Ashley and see how you can support her. But Brandon said it so well, she doesn't just need checks, she needs support to go. We have the privilege of partnering, but she needs people who are her partners in relationship with her and relationship with Ashley, if you don't know, is a blessing. So get to know her before she goes. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians 13 today as we continue our series and as we talk about the most excellent way. And we'll break this chapter up into three parts, really just seeing that without love, Christianity's worthless. And then we'll see what love is and what love is not, and then what we ought to seek after. Scott Sauls is the pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and he tells a story in his book, A Gentle Answer, about how he and his staff did Myers-Briggs tests. They did these personality tests and there are 16 different possibilities that you can be and he was an INJF and the way they did their test, it lined you up with certain historical figures and he was excited to find out what historical figures that he was most like and so there were two that stuck out to him. He was there in front of his staff and the guy administering the test told him the first one. He said the historical figure that you're most like, one of the two is Jesus Christ. <laughs> yes. Isn't that great? And then the guy administering the test said and, and the other is Adolf Hitler. Wonk, <laughs> right? See, the Corinthian church, it's so interesting because when Paul speaks of them, he speaks to people who are clearly in Christ, even with all their struggles, but their struggles are many. They can be the most divisive figures in a culture where they're called to be light. They've sought self-expression in their worship, which is really the opposite of worship, if you think about it. They've walked in the dysfunction of their natural sinful habits and just kind of said, well, that's just my personality, Right? Perhaps they epitomize what Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn describes. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. So Paul, once again, as he invites them to unity over and over and over, he invites them to surrender to Jesus and walk in what he calls the most excellent way. He ends chapter 12 by saying, I will show you still a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and offer up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing." Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. 
It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, or maybe your translation says love never fails. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So if you could sum up what we want to hear today, it's that life in Jesus is given by grace, founded on faith, and summed up in love. Let's say it again, life in Jesus is given by grace, founded on faith, and summed up in love. That's what Paul is going to teach, and in verses one through three, he really says, without love, Christianity is inauthentic. The greatest gifts and most brilliant understanding are meaningless. They make your words offbeat and out of tune. They're not harmonious to what God wants to do. They don't match with the sort of symphony that the people of God's lives ought to be. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, if I have these most amazing gifts, but I don't have love, I'm just loud and annoying, like a gong or a clanging cymbal. A cymbal can be part of something musical, or it can be really really annoying and if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love I am nothing Frederick Beekner says the highest gift of all is agape every every time you hear love in first Corinthians 13 you don't hear phileo brotherly love you don't hear eros sexual love Agape, this free love of choice that's given to others. He says, without it, even faith, almsgiving, and martyrdom are mere busyness, and even great wisdom doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Many of us struggle with this very thing of whom I am foremost. Self denying love just never has really come naturally to me. Pithy comments, snarky words, that's just how God made me, right? Laying down my life for others comes a little more difficult. So the, the point of verses one through three of this is no matter how great our ability to intellectually understand or clearly communicate or powerfully demonstrate our Christianity without love, it's just worthless. He even says, if I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. If I do the sort of things, if you do the sort of things that would surely gain us treasure in heaven, but we do them without love, then there's really no treasure to be gained at all. Christianity without love is inauthentic. Well, what is love and what is love not? 
So we hear this phrase often, love is a verb. But if, if you're an English major, you know that in the sentence, love is a verb, love is actually a noun, which is kind of confusing, right? But these verses are going to describe what love is like. Verses four through seven just tell us what love is, what love is not, what love does, what love doesn't do. And Paul starts with love is patient and it's kind. Love is patient and it's kind. And I, I think I can understand this just about as well as anybody because I've been loved really, really well all my life. I was loved by my parents. I was loved by other relatives. I've been loved by my wife. I've been loved by my children. I've been loved by friends and brothers in Christ in this room and across the world. And if you know me, what you know about them is that they're obviously very patient people, right? Love is patient. You have probably been loved like that. And love is kind. You can just hear these literally are the fruits of the spirit that flow out of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It starts with patience and kindness and then Interestingly enough, when Paul's going to say what love is not, he starts with envy. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Well, why, why start with envy? Why not start with murder, right? I mean, envy's kind of bad, right? But it, I mean, envy doesn't even sound as bad as jealousy. John Kohler says, though, that envy is the gateway sin. It's the sin that leads to all these others. And when you stop and think about that, just for a moment, it makes sense. See, it's envy that might cause a man to lust after another man's wife. It's envy that might cause a, a person to covet another person's car or truck or home or things. It's envy that'll make me so, so angry when the person in the cubicle next to me gets that promotion and I don't. See, it's envy when life's working out just right for that other person and they have the perfect this and the perfect this and the perfect this. They don't deserve that. I deserve that. See, envy will get you angry enough to kill somebody. It'll get you angry enough even to put yourself in the place of God. It's a gateway sin that leads to all these other sins. It opens a door to me being hindered from loving God and loving people through my rudeness, my boasting, my arrogance. Love doesn't boast. It doesn't boast because love that's in Christ knows that we have no reason to boast. Our life's been given by faith, by grace. It's founded on faith and summed up in love. We love because he first loved us. It's not rude. Love does not insist on its own way, which is just so unnatural. We come out of the womb wanting our own way. We want milk and we want it when we want it and we want to sleep and we want to sleep when we want it and it's babies just in really ways that don't respect the sleep habits of parents at all, right? And then we want food and we want the kind of food we want and then we want clothes and the kind of clothes we want and then we want the kind of house and the kind of car we want and we want our team to win and the other team to lose and we want the weather to be 
what we want it to be. And that seems reasonable if you've just gone through an ice storm, right? Love, though, doesn't insist on its own way. It's always thinking outward toward worship in God and care for others. Love doesn't get irritable or resentful. Now, that's a pretty amazing concept because it's really easy to get irritable or resentful. But if we just think back, I don't want to think back about two weeks ago, but when you think back about two weeks ago, we saw people who had friends and family coming into their homes, really taking over the space for a, a week at a time. And, and maybe you did get irritable or resentful, but I didn't see it. It looked like hospitality on display. It looked like this warm Christian care on display. And then the people who came in helped with cooking, helped with cleaning. They took care of one another. They served one another. They didn't get frustrated. They made the best of an awful situation. See, that's what Christian love does. And it's no surprise that it happened that way during this ice storm because Christian love is often on display well when times are hard. But it's not natural, it's not normal for a people who are called to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We have a strange tendency to weep when others rejoice. I can't believe he got that. I mean, I should have got that. He doesn't deserve that, right? And we've got this odd tendency also to rejoice when others weep. I mean, she, she's kind of a rude person. She kind of had it coming, right? But love doesn't do that. It doesn't do that. Love is patient and kind. It's not rude. It's not envious. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. And that's a really, really important distinction. If you live in Corinth in the first century or if you live in the United States or really anywhere in the West in the 21st century. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing in a world that kind of says love does rejoice in wrongdoing. It, it doesn't. Love rejoices in the truth. Well, in culture today, we'll hear people talk about your truth or my truth and there's nothing to make the word truth impotent like putting mine or yours in it. There's a word that belongs in front of truth, and it is the truth, right? One of the most popular phrases I hear today as it relates to how people love one another is that love is love. love love's love, Chase, right? Two people love each other, it doesn't matter who they are. Love's love. It doesn't matter if they're married or it doesn't matter what they're doing. They call married. I mean, love is love, right? Well, who, who decides that, Right? See, love is love, except when God says it's not. And if God says it's not, then it's not. Well, no, but you don't understand how this feels to me. Well, love does not seek its own, right? Right, but you say it's wrong, but it feels right. But love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices in the truth. And Jesus says he himself is truth. He tells the Father that his people are to be sanctified in the word and that his word is truth. Love does rejoice with the truth. 
Now hear me, when we talk about love rejoicing in the truth, we kind of do one or two things. We go to this extreme where we go, no, 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 love's love and it's just my truth and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Or love rejoices in the truth and sometimes it just does it in a harsh and uncaring and uncompassionate way. Love that rejoices in the truth is also patient and kind. So love that has no regard for truth isn't love. And then love that isn't patient or kind isn't love because love is, of course, patient and kind. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is in it for the long haul. It will bear with those It's called to, it will believe the best in people. Again, it's just remarkable how Paul speaks about these people, confident of their love in Christ. He believes the best about them even as they struggle so mightily with sin. Love hopes all things that Jesus who began a good work even in the Corinthians will bring it to completion. See, that might be really good news for you. You might sit in here and wonder, Chase, you don't know, you don't know what I've done. You don't know who I've been. And I would just say to you, you don't know what I've done and who I've been. And God can work the life of Christ in us through the power of his Holy Spirit to transform us and change us in ways like we could never, ever imagine. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, love endures all things. It can just keep going and going and going. Earlier this month, I I read a story of patient and kind, non-resentful love that endured. And it was a story of a gentleman named John Jasper. I'd never heard of John Jasper. And I began to hear about him and began to read about him. And I thought, what a great picture of the love of Jesus Christ. John Jasper was born in the early 1800s in Virginia, he was born into slavery. Spent a little bit of time in Louisiana, then was sent back to Virginia. And then of course, when the Emancipation Proclamation occurred in 1863, John Jasper became a free man. And John Jasper was a preacher. And John Jasper, after the Civil War was over, spent a significant amount of time going and preaching the gospel to former Confederate soldiers. Now, can you imagine that kind of love? There are all these barriers that it has to break, barriers barriers of thought, barriers of ideology, and then barriers of not being listened to simply because of the color of his skin, but he went and went and went and saw these former enemies, some of them become brothers in Christ because love doesn't seek its own. It's patient and kind in ways that we can't comprehend. It's not resentful, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It believes that Jesus can do what he says he can do in the life of anybody, even our enemies. What a great picture of the love of Jesus Christ. And really, when you read verses four through eight, you see 
This love is personified in the incarnate Christ. He was patient and kind. He didn't envy or boast, though he could have. He's the Lord of the universe. He wasn't arrogant or rude. He didn't insist on his own way. He said, Father, your will be done, and he laid his life down. He did, in fact, rejoice in the truth. He didn't Rejoice in wrongdoing, he bore the wrongdoing of all humanity on himself. He endured all things, even the cross. Love never fails. See, if we're to love this way, it will be the fruit of God's spirit working in our lives, overflowing out of our lives. If we're to die to ourselves, it'll be the spirit of God pointing us to Jesus in the scripture setting our gaze of our attention and our affection on Jesus Christ. And as we're enamored by him, this agape love never ends and fails, it will overflow. And because Jesus is this overarching picture of self-dying for the sake of others, so then we, the church, are meant to be this overarching picture for culture of what it looks like when a group of people from many backgrounds, places, classes, and races come together to surrender themselves fully to Jesus Christ. Now, you might be thinking, well, this is all good, Chase, but it's 1 Corinthians 13. Isn't this about weddings? It is about, I mean, you can read this at your wedding. It's a good thing to do. I've done it several times, right? But it's, it's for the church. It's about spiritual gifts. Now hear me, marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ in the church. So it probably bears asking, are you dying to yourself for the sake of your spouse? Are you living considering her or him more important than yourself? Men, are you living sacrificially in front of your kids so they know what Christian love and leadership looks like? Are you dying to yourself for the sake of their mama so that they can see what the love of Christ for the church looks like? Love never fails. And yes, it is for the church. We, we live and we love this way, not because we're under some sort of law, but because we're not, because we know what it looks like to be loved in such a way. See, we hear things the world wants like, well, we wanna experience true and real and beautiful and authentic life. And when a community of people come together and they're kind and patient and gentle with one another, when they're not resentful or irritable, when they don't boast and they're not rude or arrogant, when they don't rejoice in wrongdoing, but they rejoice in the truth together, that's a love that never fails. And it is, in fact, what true and real and beautiful and authentic and eternal life together looks like. And it's what we were made for. It's what we were made for. But there's a struggle going on in Corinth. See, love never fails. Love never fails. If y'all could take me to verse eight in the back, please. Love never fails. As for prophecies, they will pass. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. There are things that are going to pass away and the Corinthian church is more concerned with these things than they are with love. They were more concerned with their gifts than their character. They were more concerned with the influence they might have than with love. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about people in Corinth in the first century or if you're talking about fallen Christian celebrities in the 21st century. 
when you get more concerned with gifts than character, when you get more concerned with influence and love, you're headed for a fall that doesn't just hurt you, it hurts everybody around you. So Paul is going to tell the Corinthian church to seek what is lasting, not that which will pass away. Not that which will pass away. Tongues are going to cease. Knowledge will pass away. Prophecies will pass away. The perfect is going to come. So what, is, what does this mean? Tongues are going to cease. Prophecies are going to cease. Knowledge or words of knowledge will pass away. Well, there are a couple of questions I want us to answer, and Tim is going to dive in further to the gifts to discuss tongues and prophecy next week. But, but this last section bears that we talk about it a little bit, and it, there are two questions it brings up. Number one, does this mean prophecies and tongues have ceased? And then number two, what do we do with all this? Well, before I give you the answer that I believe this text bears out, I have to say that I have dear friends and brothers who know and love Jesus, who know and love the scripture, who are gonna disagree with what I say. And I don't just mean dear friends in Georgia or Alabama, I mean dear friends in the room, in this church, we love one another, we serve together, we trust one another with the gospel. This is a secondary issue that we, we're working out the scripture together on. And throughout history, there have been Christian leaders who've landed on various sides of the issue. And wherever we land, we have to love one another. Well, see, I think the answer to this first question, does this mean prophecies and tongues have ceased, is found in verses nine and 12. In verse nine, he says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Verse 12, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be fully known even, or then I shall know fully rather, even as I've been fully known. So here's what I'm gonna tell you. I don't think that from this passage that we can say tongues have ceased. I don't think we should say it. Having said that, everybody I personally know that believes tongues may have ceased knows the Bible really, really well. And that's why I don't think from this passage we should say tongues have ceased because people who know the Bible really well shouldn't do spiritual gymnastics with a text to make it mean what they want to mean. And you kind of have to stretch the text here to do that. Perfect in this context. Is the Bible perfect? Is it infallible? Is it inerrant? Is it the word of God? Yes, 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 yes. But when this talks about perfect, it says when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Then verse 12, we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I don't know fully. We know in part. So I think what this text is talking about is the resurrection, the new creation when Jesus comes. So definitively declarative dogmatic statements should flow from definitively declarative dogmatic text. Now remember that because I'm gonna come back to it when I talk about how tongues are expressed today. Definitively declarative dogmatic statements should flow from definitively declarative dogmatic text. Does this mean prophecies and tongues have ceased? I don't think we can say that from this text. So what do we do with all this? 
Well, we tend to make arguments about what we believe. I think one of the best examples, though, is in verse 11, we act like adults. We're not children. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. One of the guys who acts like an adult best on this is Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem has a systematic theology that's been a great systematic theology for a long time. And he who is a practicing charismatic is one of the strongest critics of how the gift of tongues is practiced in the West today. He would say, and I would say to you, examples that you see of how this is practiced are not only extra biblical, but they seem more demonic than biblical often. So at TBC, we do not practice tongues in a public way. And the reason that we don't is definitively declarative dogmatic statements should flow from definitively declarative dogmatic text. And, and this isn't dogmatic. Like some would tell you, there are some would say that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not a believer. If you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And I think this very text would tell us that, that we don't need to be consumed with the gifts of the Spirit. We need to be consumed by the fruit of the Spirit. We need to seek Love And so wherever you land on here, we've got to make sure we land on love. Now, are there sign gifts that happen? Are there things that are happening in the world today that seem like God is doing some remarkable things? I'm going to tell you yes, but here's what I'll tell you. A great example is from one of our missionaries in the Middle East. They've seen people who've never heard the gospel have dreams and visions. They've seen people in villages where the gospel has not been. Missionaries come in and pray and they've seen people healed in the name of Jesus. But here's what they will tell you. They're not gonna get on TV and talk about how great they are and all their power. What they'll tell you is that most of the time, the overwhelming majority of the time, this happens in unreached contexts with first-generation believers. Two things, unreached context, people have not heard the gospel, first generation believers. So what I mean is three guys will have a dream in a village, a missionary comes in, tells them about Jesus, they all had the same dream and trust Christ, but their family members don't have dreams. They hear the gospel from these new believers in their village. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and that's the normative way. So we don't get wrapped up with what might happen. We do what we're told to do is surrender people of Christ we love and when we try to love we'll see Jesus more clearly and we'll understand just how dependent we are on him to love people would say I want this miracle of tongues or prophecy man I want the miracle of being able to die to myself and love others and if you think this is the last time this year I want to think about this ice storm but let's think about it just one more time. I didn't hear anybody in Texas when their lights went out and their pipes busted. Oh, and man, would somebody just please come prophesy over me? Could I have a word of knowledge of, for when ERCOT and Encore are gonna fix this? But, but man, we needed to be loved. And we were we were. God's people loved us. Some of you are those people who loved us and love is supreme. The perfect is going to come. It's the return of Jesus Christ. How do we know? We're going to see him face to face. 
The resurrection will be as distinct from this life as adulthood is from childhood. Now dimly, then face to face. Now we know in part. Then we'll know fully, even as we've been fully known. Jesus is going to come and bring an end to all the sin that keeps us from love. When we're together in the new heavens and the new earth, everybody there will be patient and kind. Everybody there will bear with others, believe, hope, endure. No one there will be arrogant or rude. No one will insist on his or her way. Not a single person will be irritable or resentful. Wrongdoing will be a thing of the past and it will be seen for what it is, sin against holy God, and we will all perfectly understand and rejoice in the truth. We'll see him face to face. Now that's such a huge statement. We're going to see Jesus face to face, but it's even more grand than we might imagine if we just stop and consider what that took. You think about Moses, of whom the Bible says there was never a prophet before or after like him. He's the guy through whom the law came. And Moses, when he's asking God to go with the children of Israel into the promised land in Exodus 33, it says, the Lord says to Moses, this thing you've spoken, I will do. For you found favor in my sight and I know you by name. So here's this guy who has the favor of God on his life in a really unique way. And God says, I know you by name. And Moses says, please show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see my face and live which presents a problem with seeing him face to face. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand in the rock and my glory will pass by and I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And thousands of years later, Jesus comes And we're told in John 1, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who's at the Father's side, he explains what he's like and people walked with him and saw him face to face and three people got a glimpse of his glory. And it was so bright, it impacted them significantly. And the more here, through the scripture, through being in the word together, we see Jesus Christ the more we might understand, like Scott Saul's, that we need love because we've all got a bit of Hitler and Judas in each of us. Well, wait a a second. I'm I'm not like Hitler. I don't like to think of myself that way either. (laughs) And see, when you start reading the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, I know you've heard it said, do not commit murder. But I tell you, if you've been angry with your brother, you're guilty of Murder in your heart. I know you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. I know you've heard it said, love your neighbor, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Walk the extra mile. Then we realize, oh, I I need help. I need Jesus. I need his love. Because sin, like a strand of a virus that's very, very small, 
gets inside us and it multiplies and it brings destruction and difficult circumstances to the world. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we have been fully known. So now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. See, Christianity is given by grace. It's founded on faith and it's summed up in love. Faith is trust in who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Do you believe? Hope is trust in who God is and what he's going to do for us in Jesus Christ. And do you believe? And love is the overflow of trust in God that gladly seeks to meet the needs of others. Love is supreme, and because we've been loved, we now love others. Lord, let that be so. Let us be a people who aren't like loud gongs or clanging cymbals. Let us be a people whose Christianity profits nothing of the world, but let us have great profit or treasure in heaven. Let us love. Let us be patient and kind in Christ. Let us not envy or boast. Let us not be arrogant or rude. Let us not insist on our own ways. Let us not be irritable or resentful. Lord, let us not rejoice at wrongdoing, but let us rejoice in the truth. Help us, God, as we love one another on mission together to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. Let your church not fail because Jesus doesn't fail. God, help us to believe and live like the greatest of these is love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.